are talking with composer Henry Jackman, who uh, this summer just did X-Men First Class and uh, is now doing Puss in Boots. But uh, thank you for taking the time to do this, Henry. No problem. Um, I guess to start off, how did you get into music and uh, what led you to composing for uh, visual mediums? Oh, what got me into music? Uh, well, it was it's definitely something you could say runs in the family. Um, my grandfather was a... Oh, hang on. Sorry. Mm-hmm. If, there's, if there's beeping and stuff, that's going to... Are you going to edit any of this, by the way? Um, I'll clean it up to like remove okay. pauses and stuff. Hang on. Let me get rid of phones going off. Right. I'll start that again. Um, how did I get into film music? Well, mu- music started, uh, music runs pretty much throughout the family. My grandfather um, played, uh, he played in like, he, he was a saxophonist and a flautist and clarinetist. And um, uh, he played a lot of big band stuff. My uncle was in an English outfit called the King Singers, which was a sort of um, uh, a high-profile vocal group. My father was a composer. My other uncle conducted the Royal, Royal Philharmonic Choir. You know, yeah. it's all running in the family. And I had uh, pretty strict classical um, classical upbringing. So there was, uh, whether I liked it or not, I was. I mean, I was having to do my piano practice when I was five. Um, so, uh, but in terms of film, it's kind of a roundabout journey, really, because, like I say, I had this very classical training. I went to sort of classical schools. And then aged about 16, I kind of <laughs> I abandoned the whole thing, bought a computer and started making uh, drum and bass and dance music and went off into pop music and did all sorts of other things, um, a bit like the rebellious Vickers son, I suppose. Uh, and, you know, if you'd spoken to me in my early 20s, I would have completely turned my nose up at Facebook because I was way too busy being cool doing, like, white label remixes and the more records they sold the more offended i got you know if i did something where there were only like 16 pressings to the coolest djs in london then i'd be really happy um and i remember my father actually funded my father's now dead but i remember him saying because he's a very open-minded eclectic liberal kind of guy and so he could see that you know whilst this wasn't uh exactly prokofiev there's definitely something to all this electronics and production and mm-hmm. Um, so had a very open mind, but he did say, you know, you're going to, you're not going to be able to do drum and bass for the rest of your life. And you've got this whole education that started, you know, I was a chorister at St. Paul's Cathedral singing, you know, Renaissance church music. It's, you know, it's going to come back and bite you in the ass one day. <laughs> and, um, I remember him saying to me, and this was quite, I think I was in my twenties. He just said, uh, listen, if you ever get a chance to do film music, just don't think, just do it. And I was like, film music, isn't that like for old people, like uncool <laughs> people, you know? And uh, so anyway, that just, I stored that somewhere in my subconscious mind. Um, and um, so then uh, I had actually finished working with Seal on some album and I spent, I think probably out of artistic frustration, I spent about two years completely self-indulgently making my own album called Transfiguration, which was somewhat influenced by um, Bjork's homogenic and vespertine albums like that hmm. where i took i took some ideas from classical music and imagined if they were alive now and kind of produced them so it had choir and orchestra but loads of electronic stuff as well and uh hans zimmer got to hear it and he was like well what do you he called me and said what, what the hell are you doing in pop music it's a complete waste of time you should be doing film music in his uh customarily direct fashion um i was like well okay fair enough and um 
you're probably right. And then the words of my father came back to me. If I ever get a chance to do film music, jump on it. So, um, and also I think things have changed when I was, um, I don't know if you go back 20 or 30 years, I think the proposition of being a film composer is a little different meaning. I mean, no disrespect. I mean, people like Joey Goldsmith and John Williams are right. absolute mm -hmm. legends, but I think almost like culturally, partly because of what Hans has done, actually the, the, the proposition of being a film composer, meaning um, I think the reason why I didn't think of it earlier is because I want to do all my sort of crazy electronic production. If I do film music, I'm going to be sort of, you know, spending my entire life writing string quartets. Well, of course, that's not true because of what ha what's happened to film music. It could be anything from a string quartet or a string elegy or a very um, historically driven um, orchestral style where you need to have a sound education in, in you know, the history of classical Western music. Mm -hmm. Or, or it could be a load of, <laughs> you know, it could be a load of really intense grooves and distorted pulses and all sorts of keyboards and stuff, right, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so I just couldn't have been more wrong. They, it, it was like finding Mecca or, or, or some sort of oasis. Fine. I think one of the things that driven me nuts in pop music, so I, I could never really fully get to grips with it because I'd always get frustrated one way or another because either the pieces are too short so you can't kind of, you know, expand an idea or the harmonies are too limited or... You know, I mean, that's not. To, there's all sorts of fantastic pop music, but then suddenly it was. Like, oh my God! Why didn't I think of film music before? Because it really is. The scope is bigger. You've got full use of orchestra. The budgets are bigger. The scope of ideas. Like I say, one minute if you compare like X Men to Winnie the Pooh, right? Yeah. They're miles away from each other. And if you're in the record industry, you can't do. You can't go from Winnie the Pooh to X Men, and you know you'll you'll lose your audience mm -hmm. as an art. You're an artist. Um. So Hans was right when he said you're wasting your time in pop music. I said, well, you're, you're probably right. <laughs> well, I, I think you made the right decision. but um... Yeah, I haven't looked back since. You know, I hung out with him and learned a few things. <laughs> learned a lot of things, I think. Mm -hmm. And then since Monsters vs. Aliens, I've just been doing my own thing. And, and, you know, each project just seems to be... I've been very lucky in... Um, like I say, with all this classical background, I think I'd get a bit frustrated if it was all, um, you know, 21st century action cues. And then on the other hand, if you just spent all your time doing orchestral stuff, you'd probably get frustrated the other way, going, when am I going to do some cool stuff? <laughs> and I've been lucky because I've had, you know, X-Men and Man on a Ledge, a contemporary in the movie I'm working on now, that is. You know, meanwhile, I really, really enjoy things like um, Puss in Boots and Winnie the Pooh, that kind of thing. It's a completely different kettle of fish. Mm-hmm. So if you had to define the word score, what would your definition be? Uh, if you're going to get, well, it's now so all-embracing that I wouldn't even try and define it in terms of musical style. A score, the purpose of a score is in its most um, uh, abstract and wider sense is simply using sound to enhance and uh, additionally deliver meaning to a motion picture. <laughs> and that's so wide that that could be, you know, that could encompass a school made out of, you know, Tibetan bowls or... A, right. But really, it, you, you ha almost have to think that widely because otherwise you'll disenfranchise certain ideas or textures because, because of an idea of that the score should always have a leitmotif or a theme or it should always be orchestrally developed whereas you know there's been some excuse me there's been some very interesting scores in the last 20 years which uh, very often prove all of that not true so mm -hmm. basically as long as you are musically and unobtrusively and cleverly and intelligently enhancing 
the character and the story or ser- you know serving the picture to the benefit of the story then then it's a successful score whether that's um someone you know headbanging a wall playing a solo cello or the entire london symphony orchestra <laughs> Well, now I mean I'm not a musician, but um, and I I don't play any instruments, but I I do believe that music inspires images, and it's what I use to write stories and and screenplays, and what I use to edit and envision you know sequences. But you know if so if uh, you know music inspires images, what do you think is it that inspires music like for you? Um, the incoming arrival of Jeffrey Katzenberg, who wants to hear all the scenes. <laughs> Let me tell you, that definitely inspires you to write. Um, let's see. It is actually a combination of two things. One, I don't really know how it works. I think I've got better at it. I think um, the process of coming up with a theme for a character is a slightly nebulous uh, experience. I don't even understand myself. All I know is that, for instance, in Puss in Boots, I saw a very early, a very early preview. Mm-hmm where it was clear to me that there was this whole magical kingdom in the sky that was very different to the kind of Latin, Iberian, um, uh, uh, guitar-based, you know, Spanish influence thing. There was this whole other um, fantasy element, which I got very excited about, because, you know, that hot, that's more in the, the tradition of Fantasia and sort of Harry Potter, and it's a whole different style of right, writing. Yeah. It not have to be Spanish. And so I knew that would have to happen, and sort of, Literally, as I came out of the preview and walked to the car, I started humming just the first four notes of what then became the uh, the Giant's Castle theme in, hmm. in Puss in Boots. And it, it's a part of your brain, part of it is logical. It's like, I know I need a theme for this, 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 and this. You know, we're going to, there's a rational thought, which is we are going to need a fairy tale theme. And then I think you just allow yourself, so you watch them, there's something about almost inattentively watching the film where you're not trying to come up with anything you're just focusing on um the fantasy elements of the film and you just I don't know, it's the weirdest thing it's a bit like brewing a pot of tea or something and then it just sort of a little idea pops out now, now there's a lot of hard work after that but that mm-hmm. initial idea it does tend to just pop out on its own and then once you've got it you write it down you start working on the theme you expand it and you, then you've got it you know you've got to tighten up the theme and make it all work but that initial little that initial little thing is, I think, very instinctive. A bit like if you just lay down a really, really... Um, if you just put a beat together or something and someone just came in and wanted to start jamming or to find some vocal hooks, they'd just start singing any old, you know, any old words just to get something going and something would pop out, you know. And then once you've got that, you know, obviously you've got to work with it. So I would say that there's, there's a sort of initial element of inspiration and then there's quite a lot of crafting and work, you know, after that. Mm-hmm. But it's not just completely abstract because you are thinking about, you're not just popping out any old thing. You know that it has to relate to the idea or the character that you're trying to zoom in on, you know. Right. And, I mean, and you've worked with animation before. I mean, your first big solo project was, you know, Monsters vs. Aliens and you did additional music on, you know, Simpsons and Kung Fu Panda. And uh, when it comes to animation, how early does the composer get on the project and and how long are you working on that it completely depends i was very lucky in this case puss in boots i saw storyboards and hung out with the uh there's a great team on puss in boots chris miller uh latifah and and, uh joe and uh and jeffrey comes in later but the the sort of core team who are are working on it i met them 
oh, probably a year before I even started really writing the cues, cause it's just so they could like introduce. The great thing about animation, unlike live action, apart mm-hmm. from the script, you can't really introduce people to the vision because there isn't one yet. Right. Um, because it hasn't been shot. Whereas animation, you can look at storyboards, you can even look at early animated sequences that aren't lit, um, and, uh, you know, they look pretty primitive. But you start getting a feel, and, you know, you can already hear some of the voice actors. You hear Antonio Banderas, and because of the nature of animation, you can get a feel for it earlier on. So I think that that helped, for sure. Because you can still get, despite there not being perfect sequences, you can absolutely understand the character of the film from Mm -hmm. early storyboards and stuff. And, um, let's see, but so did working on, uh, on those, you know, additional music with Hans and stuff that help you prepare for what Monsters and Aliens was to be? I think so. I think the, like I say, I hadn't been actually doing film music for that long and it was really Kung Fu Panda, um, have, having, uh, having the chance to sort of see how that all happened with it, which was a John and Hans score. Mm-hmm. That was that was a real education. I was just sort of, um, you know, the fly on the wall seeing, and and, and it, it was a fantastic experience because you, it's not just the writing and the music. It's how Hans and John would interrelate with Jeffrey, who's a very hands-on. I mean, he's CEO of DreamWorks, but he's incredibly, um, he's not absent at all. I mean, he's at every music meeting. He's got ideas and notes, and he remembers, you know, pretty much all the music. Um, and just seeing the dynamics of composer and and Jeffrey and the director and the producers and. Um, just the whole experience, really, of seeing a DreamWorks animated movie um, get scored was absolutely invaluable, and that's why uh, that's probably why Jeffrey was prepared to let me do <laughs> Monsters vs. Aliens because he's like, well, you know, at least the kids see seen uh, how it works. Well, I mean, I, I loved Monsters vs. Aliens. I thought your score was like just lots of fun. But um, so for uh, now, I, I know you've talked about X Men. Plenty, you know, plenty over the summer, and I've I've heard all the interviews, so I don't I don't want to have to you know save you. I want to save you from repeating yourself. But I do have one question: um, Was it hard entering a series where you know there's already three films and an entire you know history of of the franchise? But was it hard to follow a series where every film had a different composer? So there was almost you know kind of no continuity within the series. Were you trying to create continuity or were you just trying to you know erase everything and start this is you know brand fresh actually i was helped in two ways firstly like you say um there was no um single x-men thing because there have been different composers every time it'd be a very different proposition you know if you were working on some franchise where john williams had done the first three Mm -hmm. scores something with some fantastic and consistent theme that would be very different but that wasn't the case there were scores from John Powell, John Ottman, uh, Michael Kamen, and <clears throat> the themes weren't the same. So right. that helped. But also, really, what helped uh, was Matthew Vaughan as a director is such a strong-minded um, director and has such a sort of um, reinvention of it that he almost uh, he created an atmosphere that gave permission to almost forget the other ones. Not, not forget them as in, in any disrespectful way, but not... Um, uh, it, it was very. It reminded me a bit of uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. Hmm. <clears throat> There's no disrespect to Tim Burton, who 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 did some. You know, his, his films are brilliant. Yeah. But Christopher Nolan just uh, set out his stall in Batman Begins with a completely different approach, probably even more so than X Men. To be honest, his interpretation of Batman is completely um, uh, psychologically realistic. You know, it's not cartoony at all. You know, mm-hmm. and and um, and uh, and so guess what? Hans's score. 
you know, instead of trying to out Elfman, Mr. Elfman, Hans goes off and does a completely different and very brilliant thing that's just unrelated, you know, to uh, to previous. Now, I know it's not quite the same, but um, in a way, I would almost compare what Matthew Vaughan did with the X-Men franchise a bit to um, to Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins, where you sort of, you know, you, you go back to the beginning, which you do in the story because they're much younger. And um, he just was very clever and uh and and in a way just sort of artistically powerful in creating an atmosphere that let everyone working on the film feel like this is just my film this is this is like um we don't have to uh you know it's not like we're going to be researching all three scores to see which things we can and can't use all of that i felt uh, a great freedom to just treat it like uh matthew's um Matthew's X-Men film, uh, you know, as a standalone feature film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so the mission was really just to come up with that X-Men theme, which is in the track first class on the CD. That was really, that was the biggest concern that, that, that we had to, you know, we had to come up with that theme, uh, which I think we did in the end. <laughs> I had a few of them. <laughs> that wasn't the first one. Um, but to be honest, and, and here's the other thing, the studio as well weren't, I mean, one of the things that could cause a problem in that respect, is you know you could have a director who wants to reinvent his movie, but meanwhile you could have all sorts of pressure from the studio. But there was none of that at all. I think everyone understood the X Men First Class by the nature of going back to the beginning and bringing in someone as um, aesthetically individual as Matthew Vaughan. I think everyone knew that the mission was uh, some reinvention, so um, it really wasn't a concern. We did actually use the very first cue in X Men is is directly from because it's a it's a sort of um, it, there's a kind of intellectual conceit. Where right. the very, the very beginning of X Men is actually the same as the beginning of um, the first X Men. Mm-hmm. Literally, even the, the the footage is identical. So we thought it was an appropriate tribute to play the original adagio that um, uh, Michael Kamen wrote for the, that opening scene. So that for the for the aficionados out there, for the first two minutes, they're a bit confused because like, wait a minute, this is this is the <laughs> beginning of the first X Men. Not only does it look like that, it's the same. You know, everything about it is the same. The sound effects track, the visuals, and the Michael Caine score is the same. <laughs> so and the, then it, it, it after a couple of minutes, you know, it segues off, and then we start our score. You know, two minutes in. So they did. Did they? They they didn't reshoot anything. It was like they just took it from the first film. It's exactly the same footage. Wow. It's. I think it's clever. It's a great little. Um, it's a nice little conceit. And the way they kind of slide out of it into the new film is, is quite close, very seamless. So if, if you're not familiar with X-Men, it's not self-conscious. You wouldn't know. It's no big deal. But if you're, if you're um, a fan of the X-Men franchise, you can enjoy the little conceit of how the movie starts out exactly the same as the first one. Yeah, because I me and my roommates were discussing, you know, we're like, oh, did, it's, you know, the same opening. And I'm like, did they reshoot it? And if it's exactly the same. So we're wondering if they just took the same footage or they reshot it. And because we guess... You know, we thought they... There may be a couple of insert shots. I can't quite remember, but it, it's it's pretty much a, a conceit. And, well, I, I mean, I hope you, you know, if they do the next one, that you get to continue and, and provide some consistency to X-Men because your your score was was, was fantastic. So, and, uh, and now I guess moving to Puss in Boots, which just came out, um, I guess you're venturing into a new territory sonically speaking because you know while your themes and melodies which i feel like are very much you but you know you have this hispanic style and then different instrumentation did you have to do a lot of research for that kind of music um a little bit not too much i think there's a fine line you, you definitely need to do 
a bit of thinking about um, a movie if it has a particular flavor to it. But there's a line that you shouldn't cross where it becomes too, you know, you suddenly start turning into a sort of academic researcher and you're looking at too many scores and before you know what's happening, you know, you're lifting bars 7 to 11 from Ravel's, you know, Valera or whatever it is. Um, it was really obvious that you're going to have that um, Latin influence. And, and instrumentally, that means, you know, the guitar and castanets and shakers and accordions and, you know, folk instruments. But to me, really, the critical thing was it's all very well having that, but you can't have a, a jarring situation where you leap from that to symphonic score with no thread between it, so it'll feel musically schizophrenic. Right. And the thing that I referred to was the fact that actually in symphonic classical music, there is also a tradition of um, Spanish-influenced music in a non-folk context, meaning composers like Ravel, Emmanuel Defy, and Debussy, and... There are pieces which, for want of a better word, you know, they're, they're the kind of things that would be played in concert halls by a symphony orchestra, but they also have a strong Latin influence. So, so the, that's important because, you know, if you're going to have the push theme early on played on guitar and so on, that's fine. And then later on, it needs to appear on a symphony orchestra and sound authentic and convincing. So um, I took my lead. I, <coughs> I hesitate to compare myself to some of the great. I'm not comparing <laughs> myself to some of the greatest concert composers of the 20th century what i'm saying is people you know they'd already been there at the turn of the 20th century and you know written some of the <clears throat> phenomenal concert music and that was a useful i mean that's the advantage of having <clears throat> spent all this time being over musically educated i was thinking ah yes well you know that that is going to be doable because you know composers who are far greater than i have already have already done it <clears throat> excuse me <coughs> And of course, you know, there's the you know there's a few referential in the movie, you know, the Sergio Leone sort of references. Of course, so of course yeah, you've, yeah. Got, you've got Ennio Morricone floating around in the back of your head, which almost needs no actual research because somewhere in the back of your mind you can just sort of hear the good, the bad, and the ugly, and two meals for Sister Sarah, and all those films. They're, they're lurking somewhere in the back of anyone who's seen enough films, lurking in the back of your mind you can hear and feel that sound that the sort of tubular bells and the du dusty desert wind and <laughs> yeah. the rattling mandolin trams, you know, um, you almost don't want to research it too much because by reaching into your sort of reaching into our kind of collective memory of what that's supposed to sound like and do and, and, and sort of being influenced by that, what you do probably won't actually be exactly uh, accurate. It'll be more like uh, how you're remembering it, you know. So mm -hmm. that's what I mean by just, you know, don't do too much research. Just sort of, um, you know, like if I asked you to, uh, if I asked you to write a song, sort of in the being influenced by Bob Dylan, it probably wouldn't have the exact chord sequence or anything. But you, you sort of know what I mean, right? Yeah. You know, you'd end up writing a folk song, hopefully with some kind of vaguely meaningful lyric that has some sociological context <laughs> and you'd be strumming on the guitar and you'd mostly be kind of singing in a half singing half talking style <laughs> but it, you know but by the time you've done your version it will have wandered off into a slightly different area by then you're just sort of taking it as a starting point and and the great thing for me because i'm familiar with a lot of concert music that style and things like ennio morricone it's all kind of lurking in the back of your head somewhere you know all right and um and now, did Rodrigo and Gabriela, were they, did they pr play, perform on your score, or did they just use the songs from their album? No, they did a couple of things. The, there, there were two fantastic tracks, which I think are off their first album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a great sequence um, where Puss and Kitty are sort of dancing around like crazy early on in the film, where the track, 
uh, you know, with a bit of editing to hit the picture was just mm -hmm. perfect. So much energy, <clears throat> so much authenticity, so much originality. Those guys are just, you know, you only need to hear about four bars and you know it's them because they have such a such a style. Mm -hmm. And they they work so well together because um, uh, Gabriella is like like some crazy, incredible uh, uh, guitar-based drum machine. I mean, the amount of rhythm that comes out of that woman is the same as, you know, like 15 percussionists. Uh, and then Rodrigo is, you know, the melody guy. So you put the two together and, you, you, you know, you've got, you've got everything you need. So there was that sequence and the sequence towards the end of the film when um, they've got all the eggs and they're dancing around celebrating. Right. But we were lucky. I was also lucky that having written the score, um, uh, they, uh, we, uh, we were really lucky that they could, they could, Rodrigo and Gabriela played um, not all the guitar cues, but when... Um, you know, anything that was, uh, I don't know what you call how you call it, anything that was really character driven. Mm -hmm. They did a lot of, they did a lot of the playing, you know, actually in the score as well, as well as those two tracks. Um, it's actually them playing the guitar parts, you know, of the score, of the score pieces that I wrote, um, which worked great. I mean, it was fantastic. I didn't, I mean, they've got their own studio in Mexico. Um, they're so cool to work with because, you know, I mean, when, when you get artists of that caliber and, and also of that fame and skill, I mean, you could imagine a situation where people go, well, you know, I don't want to just, you know, play an instrument on someone else's piece of music. But I mean, nothing could be further. I mean, we, I couldn't give them enough. I was thinking perhaps I could persuade them to play, say, two or three of the really critical cues. Mm -hmm. And they, would, they were like, you know, send us the whole lot. We'll just keep going, you know? <laughs> I mean... Because they've got their own sound and their own setup, we would just send these uh, tracks over, and uh, they were just cranking. And we'd get these recordings back, and it was it was just fantastic and and really effortless. You know, they just um, because also if you're more used to just playing your own music, and you're you know they're the stars of their own show. It's a different proposition when there's this piece of music. It's been written. It's got you know key changes and bars all over the place and the tempo sliding around. You know, it's not normally what they do at their great concerts. And, uh, you know, they just didn't bat an eyelid. We send it all off and uh, back it came. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've seen, I mean, I've, I wanted their first album came out. That was, I think, 2006. And I, I heard them on, it performed on Jay Leno. And I was like, first, I was like, what, these people need to like, these guys need to get into score. And then when they did uh, Night and Day for John Powell last year, I was like, you know, it's like, wow, it's about time. And then, you know, Hans used them. And then I was excited to, you know, see you use them. So, I mean, maybe they'll be composing soon. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I tell you, it makes such a difference. Just going back to the actual playing, uh, you know, all the key, oh, they were playing on the cues I'd written. I tell you, it may, when you're working really hard and you're thinking, oh, you know, is this, are we going to be able to get, I remember at one point thinking, well, you know, even if we can't persuade them to play on the, cues it's not gonna make that much difference you know there's plenty of people who can play in that style and and it'll you know but i tell you i'm so glad they did because it's all very well being technically good at the guitar and you're hitting all the right notes and um you know it's well recorded and everything but there's this extra ingredient you get with rodrigo and gabriella of course the notes are played correctly i mean that's mm -hmm. a that's a that's a given but it's so much more than that there's this whole extra gear of instrumental character um, and, and it really helps the movie. You know, it's the difference between a session player and an, and, and an artist player. And <clears throat> without realizing the overall effect of that is that uh, you shouldn't even be conscious of it. As you're watching the movie, there's this, this sort of added layer of character conviction 
because when you're hearing the guitars, you know, it's Rodrigo and Gabriella, and they're just giving it some extra, in the same way that Antonio, but, you know, you could argue, oh, well, you know, I'm sure we can get a number of people to do the voice for Puss. It's like, well, yeah, maybe you could, but I tell you what, Antonio Banderas, it just gives it, just pushes it, <laughs> you know, to the state of, of perfect. I, I honestly can't think of anyone who would have nailed that better than him, you know. And it gives it gives the animated character just all this extra life because of the phenomenal um, voice acting that Antonio Banderas does. And and you know, in our own lesser way, um, I think that's what Rodrigo and Gav- I say lesser. I don't mean to demean. I mean that you know, no- nothing's going to be as important as Antonio Banderas's dialogue. But um, you know, in the our score equivalent of that is that instead of having um, just a good session player. We've got that added level of authenticity. Right. And I mean, I, mean, I saw the film. It was, uh, I enjoyed it a lot. And, uh, you know, I was, I wasn't expecting it to be, you know, it was great. It was completely kind of disconnected from the, the Shrek stories, but well, it, that's right. yeah, it is. I mean, that's going back to that discussion about X-Men and franchises right. and other and stuff like that. Great thing about Puss in Boots. Again, I mean, it wasn't like Shrek was the white elephant in the room. It, it just wasn't relevant. It was fine. Okay, everyone knows where they've seen this character, but from the very opening of Puss in Boots, and when you see um, Sam Ricardo and the, the new characters and, and just the setting and the flavor and the story, it's just it's a complete, it's a different it's a different universe. And they were very successful in creating a completely self-contained world. To be quite honest, if you'd just gone to see Puss in Boots and Shrek had never existed. It would work as a film. It's a film about Puss in Boots, you know. Exactly, yeah. It, it doesn't need any backstory required. It, you know, it's not like you're required to watch the Shrek films for it to make sense. It, it's completely uh, self-contained and really successfully so. No, I totally agree. I mean, and uh, and I guess looking forward, as we're kind of wrapping up, you have Man on a Ledge. Uh, now it's announced. That's... Uh, coming in January. Can you talk about that at all, what your approach was? I mean, it's a thriller, which is not something yeah. you've done. Again, going, going back to our conversation about, and um, the great thing about film is, is you really can have your cake and eat it. Right. I mean, my, I, honestly, I can't, I, I'm so grateful that I ended up in this job. I can't, every now and then I have to pinch myself because, I don't know, most things in life, you just can't have your cake and eat it. I mean, if you're a great, you know, if you're a, I'm really into soccer, you know, if you're a great striker and it's scoring loads of goals, you're just not going to be a goalkeeper. It's as simple as that. And if you're a great goalkeeper, even if you play for like Real Madrid or Barcelona, you're not suddenly going to be a striker. I mean, you can't do everything. It's just not possible. But in film music, um, you really are lucky enough. So, we, you know, we've just been talking about Puss in Boots and guitars and castanets and, you know, Debussy and Ravel and Manuel Defire. And then, you know, uh, we you talk about Man on a Ledge, none of the above is relevant. Man on a Ledge just is, it might as well be a different universe. Right. Puss in Boots, it's set in New York. It's about, and you, you, you've, got a, you've got like Sam Worthington and Ed Harris. It's about, it's a very, uh, it's a story with tons of twists and there's lots of sh- sort of story chicanery. Uh, there's a heist involved. There's sort of double crossing and double meanings all over the place and you don't know what's going on. <clears throat> and to have some sort of, uh, historical classical score for that would be the quickest way to completely ruin the film <laughs> it's it's all pressure and um and uh, there's a lot of electronics in there and it's way less thematic and much more visceral with sort of building tableaus of pulses and mm. ostinatos and it's just a, a completely different approach where 
you know, even if you were a very well-trained composer and spent all his time studying like a good boy and, listen, you know, you knew all your Bach and Mahler, and none of that would be of any use to you <laughs> on something like a man on a ledge, unless you know how to use electronics and build tension with minimalist textures. Um, you know, you could be the, you know, most accomplished classical composer ever, and it, it's just irrelevant in a film like that. And so, you know, you just go to a different cupboard and pull out a whole different set of tools, which is really enjoyable in its own. You know, you, you don't use the real thing with those contemporary thrillers that are much more minimal is your use of chords and harmony and melody is really reduced. It's not like, you know, you wouldn't enter a score like Man on a Ledge. You, you wouldn't present that to your sort of composition tutor at Oxford University as an example <laughs> of some of the most diverse use of harmony in the universe it's it's, it's the precise opposite i mean you'll get four minute cues that may not even change key or you know only have two chords in them it's completely if anything if you've spent a lot of your time clubbing and listening to progressive house music that's actually going to serve you better in terms of you know i i often think that bt the artist who does a lot of progressive house music right. is a good influence in terms you'll get these eight minute progressive house tunes that will be at I don't know, 130 bpm you can have a kick drum going all the way through for seven minutes and all of these textures just kind of slowly and sexually evolve you know over time and there's no sense of key change or no sense of a relation to the history of classical it's just a completely different approach and for those sorts of movies i would honestly argue that uh, a sort of solid understanding of progressive house music is much more important <laughs> than you know you might as well throw everything you know about wagner in, in the trash can <laughs> well that sounds I mean, yeah. awesome <laughs> yeah no well it's true and it's important because otherwise you get caught out if you don't um, if, you, if you're just trying to chance it and you don't really know what you're doing with electronic, one, one of the big mistakes is to feel like real composing is you know, being properly classically educated and knowing how to orchestrate and knowing all your composers and having done all your Haydn string quartets and your Bach chorales and everything. And then when it comes to electronic stuff, sort of slightly looking down on it as, oh yeah, that's the sort of teenage stuff with you know, weed-smoking cretins just sort of hit a few weird bleepy noises and think it's music, but it's not. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. Just like any other kind of music, you'll get extremely unimaginative, poorly executed electronica, and you'll get stunning, unbelievably well put together electronica. I'm, I, you know, I spend, I probably divide my time fifty-fifty between listening to classical music and you know non-classical music, mm -hmm. and I, I could proud, I would very proudly show my <laughs> Oxford. Uh, music tutor, all sorts of tracks, which I would argue have the same level of textual sophistication in them as any Debussy. Um, you know, if you take some of the best orchestrated music like Ravel and Debussy, I can show you electronic pieces of music where the level of crafting and the level of thoughtfulness that has gone into how the textures are interacting are, are just as complex as some of the most, um, you know, well respected so called, you know, concert music. Um, so. And uh, I think, Han, again, going back to Hans Zimmer, he's um, been really influential in, in that whole process of doing, taking the electronic part of it extremely seriously and doing a really, really good job of it as opposed to, you know, treating it as some sort of secondary type of music. I mean, if you listen to something like the Joker Suite from oh, absolutely, yeah. Dark Knight, there is a classic example. If you were, um, you know, if you were at some snooty... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, music meeting with a bunch of sort of classical um, uh, uh, academics 
and you were proposing, okay, I'm going to write an eight-minute piece of music, and it's going to have a D in it and a C, right? And it's going to go, dun 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 they'll just be like, what the hell's that? That's useless. Hmm. There's, no, there's no composition. There's no, say, well, hold on. I haven't finished yet, right? <laughs> that, those are the notes. The notes are D and C, but I'm going to go away for three months, and I'm going to develop every conceivable rhythmic and instrumental texture to do that rhythm, and it's going to have, like, ridiculously cool percussion and that you just reserve judgment and then you know like three months later you show up and play the joker suite and suddenly it's like oh wow actually that is amazing yeah <laughs> but if you strip it down it's a d and a c that's very, that, very simple yeah it's incredibly simple but what that shows is the level of sophistication in the production and the construction is is um at the highest possible level and that doesn't come so much from the history of classical music that's more from the history of electronic and pop music now if you it, like hands you know his roots are in electronic music so deep in his soul he knows the power and the quality inherent in nailing electronic music and getting it right so because it's a very brave decision to go okay my joker in you know because you'd probably be thinking well i'd probably need a bit of a theme right you know mm -hmm. i can't just have a d, d and a c so no, no 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 if you stick to your guns and you really nail it i mean it's the same with the concert music equivalent of that is minimalist music by people like, I don't know, Philip Glass and John Adams does it mm -hmm, to yeah. some extent. Michael Nyman. It's like, no, if you get it right, you can have a 15 minute, you know, string piece that is in fact patterns of stuff. You just, it's a different technique. Now, of course, when Hans does the Joker Suite, it's not just strings. You've got all these unbelievably cool sounds in there, but each sound is handmade, you know, and each rhythmic pattern is sort of <clears throat> homegrown in his sort of organic um, electronic vegetable patch. So when you spend that amount of time and love on something, um, it, it's almost more in the Trevor Horn, you know, all that art of noise, uh, almost that's an influence, you know what I mean, where it's not so much that the harmony would rival Wagner or something, it's that the production construction is unbelievably original and so engaging that in fact you only want a D and a C because, because there's so much evolution in the production. And uh, and I think I think that's a really important part of modern electronic music. And without being rude, I, you can sort of hear in scores people who have a sort of what you might call uh, a passing knowledge of electronic music, like a sort of uh, uh, an, an an acquaintance that isn't necessarily profound because it, it can it can come across like that. You know, it sh you should never view electronic music as just some sort of extra icing on the cake you can chuck in and get some you know let's get some synth guy to come in and sort of you know put a few like weird noises over the top you know it's a lot more profound than that and i i think hans has been absolutely seminal in a lot of, if you think about all those the trevor horn van gellis hans zimmer you know these are all respect you know no one looks down on that music because those guys have nailed they've done it um you know i i, I honestly think the joker suite is probably one of the best examples of of how to write music that's not harmonically, it's deliberately not harmonically sophisticated. That that is breathtakingly good. And look at the response to it. People love it. That opening scene in the the first time you hear, it, you know, in the bank heist at the beginning of mm -hmm. the of the dark night. I mean, it just sounds brilliant. Oh, it's, it's, uh, it sends chills down your spine. You know, it's, it's amazing. Exactly, exactly. And you don't and. Uh, and it's hard work because, he, you know, he's not relying on, on uh, you know, key changes and the power of harmony to get him through. It's all in the construction, which is why, I'm so, why I keep referring to Trevor Horn. 
who, um, you know, if you look at those Frankie Goes to Hollywood records, mm-hmm. yeah. the way the the two tribes, stuff like that, it's all on one chord. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's the same principle where you've got it's all on this one note. But I tell you what, you know, you have that beautiful string intro, you know, that Ann Dudley did, and then that hook starts and the whole thing starts evolving. It's an epic record. That record just changed what people thought you could do when you make a record. You know, up until then, it's like, well, isn't a record for the people turning up and it's like a band and then you do some overdubs and, and Trevor was like, no, that's not what a record, a record is this like epic jigsaw um, with a ridiculous amount of production in it, you know. It's easy to take that for granted now because we've all got computers. But when Trevor right, Horn yeah. did right, at that point, it, 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 I can't. It was just a different way of doing things. And, and it's in a way, they're, they're slightly related, Trevor Horn and Hans Zimmer, in that there's another example of something that isn't, you know, harmonically developed like Wagner. But it's, it's astonishing in terms of its production. As, as it happens, Hans is such a genius. He can actually do both. You know, if you look at Da Vinci Code, now, now that's the score that's all about sexy use of chords and harmony and everything but what i'm saying is, so man on a ledge is more pulling on um that tradition where you can't um fall back on your sort of knowledge of of how to manipulate the symphony orchestra to its full full extent you know like a, like a fantasy score for orchestra you, you've got to pull out your electronic chops you know to get through a, a film like that and i really enjoyed it and they were very up for it. It was a very, uh, Lorenzo de Bonaventura and Asger, the director, were not in the slightest bit conservative. I mean, I had a few noises in there that were sort of dubstep. And I was like, you know what, they're not going to go for this. I'm, I'm probably pushing the boat out, you know, a little bit. <laughs> and it was the other way around. Asger was like, what's that, what's that weird noise in there? And, like, and I was about to go, yeah, yeah, don't worry, I'll take it. I said, no, 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 can't we have more of it? <laughs> And I was like, well, there you go. And that goes back to what I was saying about how film scores changed. I, I mean, I'm sitting in a room with a, you know, a director who's probably not much older than me um, going, I want more of the, you know, kind of, I want more of the crunchy stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, distorted bass line, triplet bass lines that, if anything, are more influenced, you know, that's, that's coming more from dubstep than any, than any other, you know, <laughs> historical. Well, I can't wait to hear it. I mean, that sounds, you know crazy awesome but um and i always like to you know i guess that's all the questions i have for you right you know with that but um i always like to finish interviews by asking composers uh if you had the chance to score any film ever made with uh, no disrespect to the original composer uh what movie would you uh, choose that's so difficult that's so difficult <laughs> for all the reasons we've just been talking about because whatever i if i pick something super epic requiring like the most awesome symphonic <laughs> score ever I'll regret the fact that there's no electronic stuff in it. And if I pick something contemporary, I'll be thinking, damn, you know, I should have, I should have said Gandhi. <laughs> so I might have to pick two. If, if it were to be something, for want of a better word, you might call classic, it might have to be the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Lord of the Rings, just because there are so many epic themes. Mm-hmm. And there are very few films that have no irony. You know, when the heroism is when you get heroic material in Lord of the Rings, there's nothing ironic about it. It's just straight up heroism. Mm -hmm. Love themes would be allowed to be fully committed love themes that don't need any wink or nod or irony. Everything's um, committed because of the, because it's a historical and, and a fantasy thing. So it might have to be Lord of the Rings for the symphonic one for something contemporary. 
It would probably be some kind of Christopher Nolan film because the man's a genius, but I can't really say that because Hans has, <laughs> Hans has nailed all those. How about Memento, uh, Memento or Insomnia or Prestige? Yeah. Yeah, well, well, I don't know. I'd have to think about what the contemporary one would be. <laughs> but then, yeah, then I suppose, yeah, it would it'd be Lord of the Rings stroke Harry Potter probably just because <laughs> Harry Potter is the ultimate indulgence for fantasy writing. Absolutely. But, I mean, I fear it would pale into insignificance compared to John Williams. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there you go. That, that's a sort of uh, a roundabout answer of sorts. That's a good, um, good answer. Well, actually, Alien would have been pretty good to Ooh, do. That, that is a good answer. <laughs> well, um, Henry, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It was, I mean, you gave me so much insight and everything. So, and hopefully everyone listening will appreciate it too. But thank you so much. No problem.